What if every day you had the chance to experience more love and intimacy in your life? We're going to be sharing stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. Enjoy this podcast with Dawn Richard. Wake up to real love. Hi, everyone. This is Dawn Richard, also known as The Awakening with Dawn, and this is the Wake Up to Real Love show, where we are here to share stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. And I am so honored today to welcome my guest, Dr. Haley Nelson. Hi, Dr. Haley. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Dr. Haley, she is so smart. You're going to know how smart she is. Uh, she is a neuroscientist, like a neuroscientist. Hello, who's a neuroscientist? Dr. Haley is. Dr. Haley is a neuroscientist, tenured psychology professor, international speaker, and founder of the Academy of Cognitive and Behavioral Neuroscience, where she's passionate about making neuroscience approachable because like to me, neuroscience is like, oh my God, that's like brain surgery, right? Really, literally, literally, literally. Um, She earned her PhD in psychological and brain sciences from the John Hopkins University and has over 20 years of teaching experience with students from diverse backgrounds. She's also had several, she has several peer reviewed research publications and previous research and faculty appointments with the National Institutes of Health the Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Pennsylvania. By creating certification programs with the Academy of Cognitive and Behavioral Neuroscience, Dr. Haley combined her knowledge of the human mind and brain health with her passion for education, teaching, and consulting to truly make neuroscience accessible and approachable. She loves working with life coaches, wellness professionals, therapists, and counselors who are ready to stand apart and show up as true leaders in their field. By earning their certification in cognitive and behavioral neuroscience, her students learn easy-to-swallow knowledge of how the brain works in real-life situations and are armed with an education and a subject they can use literally every day. And I think, actually, all people need to learn this stuff. So not only that, they gain the power to serve their clients better and gain the confidence to speak with authority about how and why what they teach their clients actually works. Welcome, Dr. Haley. Thank you so much, Don. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. Okay. When you listen to all that stuff, could you have imagined like when you were a kid that this would be, this would become you? No. And the thing is, is I know that this is just the beginning. So I hope that, you know, 10 years from now, I look back at this and say, wow, remember when I said I couldn't imagine being where I am now? And, you know, it's, it's such an honor. And I am very privileged to have been afforded so many amazing opportunities, but I also worked really hard. So I have of to give myself credit where credit's of course due. You and, did. Yeah, so, I mean, I got my yeah. master's degree and I was like a PhD. That's more. And plus all your fellowships and all that kind of stuff. So just I bow down to your wisdom. Oh, thank you. But I try to keep it real. I'm also a wife and yeah. So I think that is, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, a neuroscientist, I can't talk to them. What, how am I going to be able to relate to them? And I'm like, I'm probably, you know, because the I'm dumbest normal. neuroscientist you'll meet or you oh, know, come on. Not the dumbest, but I'm the realist, you know, like I'm going to say really stupid things and put my foot in my mouth all the time. And, you know, I, I 
tell fart jokes with my kids, you know? Exactly. 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 I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So this, I usually ask an icebreaker question and I couldn't come up with anything more because I'm super passionate about this topic. Um, and, but it relates to your work is are men and women's brains different? (laughs) Great question. (laughs) Um, yes and no. There are some differences. So historically, it was really, we were looking mainly at the sexual areas, right? So things that would control sexuality and performance aspects. And there's clearly different areas there, right? Um, and, you know, different sizes and everything. Now, Different sizes, literally. I'm going to make a bad joke about that. I know, right? <laughs> bigger isn't always better, right? So it's what you do with what you have that counts. And that actually is kind of the moral to the story where there Boy. are some slight differences and slight activation differences between genders. Um, but it also, the biggest difference is more about how they're interconnected, these regions. So it's not necessarily that, oh, the amygdala or the hippocampus is bigger in one and not the other. It's more, when are they more activated in which types of situations? And then what does that mean? How does that actually manifest behaviorally or cognitively? That's where I think big difference is. It's like, who cares if the brain is functioning differently, but how does that actually manifest and show itself to either, you know, the outside world or the internal world as well? Because I, because I heard, um, last week that men's brains are more compartmentalized and women's yeah. brains are more, more interconnected. Yeah. yeah. And so it, there, there is truth to it, but then there's also, individuals who have the complete opposite. And then there's, it just depends on what task you're asking people to complete as well. So Uh for example, men are a lot better at spatial orientation and spatial rotation. So like whenever it's time to pack up our trunk to go on vacation, that's my husband's job. It's a lot easier for him to be able to say, ah, this suitcase goes here and this one goes here. Whereas me, I just throw it all in there. Like I have no idea how to do it. Um, But then when it comes to organizing our schedules and planning for the future and categorizing, you know, lunches and making sure that the kids are all taken care of and the multitasking, right. I thrive at those types of tasks. So it's more, again, it's more about the connect connections and the way that the brain is activated in different times. It doesn't necessarily mean that my brain is bigger or better than my husband's. Right. It's right. just the the organization and the flow of the communication is slightly different and it's less different than you would think believe well, it or not well, yeah I, there are differences but they're not as profound as you would think because if you look at you know men's behavior versus women's behavior it can seem so different in certain situations but really the fundamental structures are pretty similar well, and I, and I wonder too, because we communicate in different ways as well, because men are more conditioned to, um, to, to do, mm-hmm. you know, like to be to more fit. goal or goal oriented, whereas women are more conditioned to be communal and collaborative. So that's why I feel like the men is, you know, the men's brain and the men's behavior and the men's conditioning is more around get to the point and women is like, Oh, well, let's circular, you know, I mean, talking about the circularity and the connection with, well, this relates to that, which relates back to this. And so that's why women tell the story 
mm-hmm. tell the story and men are like, get to the point. <laughs> well, if you think that has evolutionary advantages too, right? So if you think way back to caveman times, the men had to go out and hunt and fend for themselves. And it was right. all about how do I fix the solution I need to provide? But they weren't necessarily going out and hunting together because that would actually make them louder. And, you know, Targets. so it's... Exactly. Whereas the women would stay back and help raise their young and forage together and educate and teach. And so it it has an evolutionary advantage. And you can see this with other species as well. So, um, you know, there there's absolutely evidence to that observation that you just made. Okay, so how does this relate to how does this relate to our brains and, and how we show up in the world? So when we're talking about our brain, I want, let me just put it all out there just so people can understand a little bit more. Lay about, the foundation, yeah, Dr. Very big picture here. So the average adult human brain weighs about three pounds. Okay. Yet it consumes over 20% of all of our oxygen in our brain or in our body, right? So it's a very, very active organ. It uses a lot of oxygen, a lot of energy. And so in this three pound mass, and this is just our brain itself, there's anywhere from 80 to 100 billion neurons. That's billion. Is that all? That's it. it, You know, and for those of you who don't know, neurons are the specialized cells that make up the brain and the nervous system. um, And they can generate electricity and communicate with each other through chemical reaction or chemical release known as neurotransmission, which I'm sure I'm going to be talking about in a little bit. But so each one of these upwards of 100 billion neurons has 10,000 connections with other cells. Right. So 80 to 100 billion neurons, each with 10,000 connections. So we're talking, I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but it's basically an infinite number of possible connections that we have within this three pound organ. Right. Some people look up at the universe and feel how small they are and, you know, all the stars in the galaxy and all of that. But for me, we have that within our ear, like between our ears, right? We have an infinite number of possible connections that we can make. And that's why, for example, genetically identical twins can react and respond very differently to the same stimulus, right? Right. And it's all through experience. And you used a key word earlier. You said conditions, right? Men are conditioned to behave and think in a certain way. Well, that's experience. That's learning. So how have they learned and created these connections, these new neural pathways, so actual pathways between the neurons that that are allowing them to communicate? The more you experience similar or the same task, then the stronger those connections are going to be. And that's how you can automate behaviors. That's how you can create personality profiles, everything like that, because they're continued. Those are the stronger and strengthened connections that we have through experience and through that kind of exposure. So, yeah, I mean, it is all connected, right? Literally and figuratively. And that's why I love talking about the brain because everything that we are able to do is because of our brain from breathing to our heart rate, to our gag reflexes, to moving your pinky toe, to feeling a, a, you know, a pain signal, emotional or physical pain, anything, right? How we think, how we behave, how we act, even 
the onset of puberty and menopause or hormonal changes. It's all controlled by the brain. And so that's why I'd love to be able to teach people who might feel like it could be a little intimidating, right? <laughs> to say, it's okay. It is. I mean, that's why people win Nobel prizes, right? For some wow. of the stuff that they were able to understand and, and uncover. But I think it's so important for people to understand, yes, we have an infinite number of possible reactions and responses. So let's use that knowledge to help shape our brain, shape our both physically and, you know, figuratively and literally shape it to create these new neural pathways that are more adaptive. If you're struggling to overcome certain challenges, well, let's remove that automation and change it to a new behavior or a new thought process that is going to help you thrive instead of, you know, just cope and survive. Okay. Can, can we talk about how people actually do that? Because I think, I think this is part of people's struggles. It's like, if they show up doing the same, you know, know, show up and do the same thing and expect different results. What is that Mm -hmm. the definition of? Insanity. Insanity. Right. (laughs) Right. But I think people, um, I think people have a really hard time creating something new for themselves. And I know before, when we talked earlier, um, before the, you know, when we first met, we were talking about people being creators of their life mm-hmm. and their own experience. And so there is neuroscience in creating new neural pathways, right? So can you talk about how that happens, how people can do that? Absolutely. And so another thing to keep in mind with these neural pathways, the whole reason why they're created in the first place is to automate, to make things simpler and to make the, the just things a lot easier, right? So I like to consider the nervous system is wanting to follow along the path of least resistance. Okay. Easier doesn't necessarily mean better. Correct. But it still wants, it doesn't want to have that resistance. It doesn't want to work harder. It wants to simplify and automate tasks and projects. Now, sometimes, unfortunately, that can give you really bad habits, right? But it's still, it's automated and it's your nervous system is optimized for that. Why spend time every single meal thinking about how you're going to chew and how you're going to, you know, swallow and do all these things, right? It's automated. You just automatically do these things. You Uh know what smells are going to trigger. And it's just, it's an automatic process. So instead of taking that energy, into thinking about those things. It just does it. So when you want to change it, you're going to have a lot of that resistance. And I think that's where people fall because they aren't really sure how to overcome some of those setbacks. And the fact that, okay, we're primed to be able to flow along the path of least resistance. Now I'm feeling resistance and my nervous system doesn't want to do it. And I don't want to feel pain and I don't want to feel discomfort. It's a lot easier to just fall back into my old ways. So the first step is being aware that that's probably going to happen, but then also be intentional about what you want to do. It's a lot easier to just do whatever has worked, quote unquote, for you all right. of these years, right? But then, and then to actually have to face some of that adversity and that discomfort. So, you know, just, you have to be intentional. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to dream and I'm going to think about things, but then you have to actually put it into action. You have to put those goals into action in order for them to actually work. 
a couple ways that you can maximize your success when you're doing these is to, there's so many different things, but to increase neuroplasticity, one key thing, and this is something that you already did earlier today, Don, is to get some aerobic exercise. Go out for a walk. Even if the habit or the change that you're trying to make has nothing to do with physical activity, getting out there and getting that blood flow and that oxygenated blood pumping throughout your body actually helps protect your neurons. So it releases a chemical known as BDNF, which stands for brain derived neurotropic factor. And this say that is, three times fast. I know, right? <laughs> That's why I like acronyms. BDNF. It's a lot easier. But it releases this chemical that protects the cells from dying. And it also helps aid with neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is the fact that your brain is moldable. So now you can create these new pathways. So it helps create these new pathways. It also helps facilitate creativity, mm, right? And thinking yeah, outside yeah. the box. So that's one tip I always like to, to tell people. Um, but also if you can tie an emotion to what you're doing. Another thing that our nervous system is set up for is survival. And that is the whole function of emotions to aid in our survival. So if we're trying to make a change in our life, tying that emotion to it, instead of just saying, oh, I'm really grateful for whatever, or I, you know, um, I really want to lose a lot of weight, or I want to make a lot of money, or whatever your goal is that you're trying to achieve, if you can tie an emotion to that, a why behind it. I want to lose weight because it's going to allow me to be a better mother and my kids are going to be happier around me because I'll be able to go for walks and, you know, throw the football outside with them easier, whatever it is. Some, and that's just going to make me feel good. Or I want to make a lot of money. If I make a lot of money, that means how many people I've served and helped mm. and allowed them to be able to achieve their greatness. And that's what the money represents. So when you tie that emotion to it, it automatically is going to activate our nervous system and want to work towards that goal even better. So instead of working against yourself, it's a way to allow your nervous system to work with you. Um, and then novelty is another really, really key thing that you can incorporate into your daily routine. Try new things. Even as simple as brushing your teeth with your left hand. Your if you're opposite right hand. Yeah. yeah. Or writing a note with your left hand instead of your right hand. And, you know, things like that. Your brain wants to, it gets activated when there's something novel and new in your environment. It's going to wake it up. How many times have you, you know, driven to work and you completely forgot that drive? You don't even remember right. turning left and right and you were in the car for like 45 autopilot. minutes. autopilot. Yeah. Uh -huh. But if you, yeah, autopilot, exactly. But if you go a different route, now you're going to start noticing things on the street. You're going to notice billboards that you didn't even recognize were there before. And you're going to see sights and hear sounds and smells and everything kind of just wakes up. So it's going to activate all of these new potential connections that you can actually create. So those are three tips to help yourself go. I mean, if you're saying, oh, I want to be a marathon runner, but you're not changing anything in your day, you're not changing your diet, you're not waking up differently, you're not stretching, you're not, I mean, it's just not going to happen. I mean, mm -hmm. technically it could, but you're working against yourself. You might as well make it easier for yourself. Okay. I want to ask you, how are the emotions tied to the brain? 
In so many ways. So there's an area of your brain, there's a whole region known as the limbic system. And this area is, some people call it the reptilian brain. I don't like to use those terms because it's not. Because I'm not a lizard. (laughs) Because I'm not a lizard. (laughs) However, what that refers to is the fact that it's been conserved through hundreds of millions of years of evolution. That Mm -hmm. legitimately lizards actually have this same circuitry that humans do. It's been conserved throughout all vertebrate evolution. So that's what it really refers to, that it's been there. Like our prefrontal cortex, it has not. That's a very human area, right? The the cortex, that's what makes us stand out from our, you know, our... That's the judgment. That's the judgment, right? That's undeveloped. Yeah, judgment, executive functioning, (laughs) decision-making, all of those (laughs) things, yeah. Um, But this limbic area really is tied to emotion. And that's why I said that it's essential for survival, because otherwise, through evolution, we wouldn't have it. There wouldn't be a need for it if we didn't need to have emotions tied to it. And in particular, there's an area of the brain known as the amygdala, and it's... um, it's involved in many functions, but primarily it's one of the, it's an area that's going to recognize emotion and help you process it and have memories processed through that way instead of areas like your hippocampus, which are more for encoding regular everyday facts and knowledge and you know, think of it more as like a Google search engine, very algorithmic. It's like your filing cabinet for your memories. Okay. Whereas those emotional memories, those are more processed in your amygdala, right? So you can remember what you had for dinner last night, but then if something emotional happened during it, that might be processed differently in your amygdala. So they absolutely are tied to the brain. They're actually processed very differently. And then so when the amygdala is activated, it's going to trigger different chemical signals that can in turn activate the stress response system, for example, to be able to protect you. So if you see some kind of a threat coming towards you, if you're perceiving it, whether it's a saber-toothed tiger or if it's, you know, a gunman or if it's a house burning or if it's your cell phone falling into your toilet, right? (laughs) If you are perceiving that as a threat, it's going to automatically activate that stress response to help protect you, right? And so the big key word there is perceived, if you perceive it as a threat. So we can't control the stressors in our environment, but what we can control or at least learn how to control is how we evaluate those stressors. And so having a really hard task at work, your boss comes in and says, okay, Don, you have to do this. And this is the the flight that you're going to have to be on. And you're just like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? I have all these other things scheduled. And if you go into that panic mode and you're evaluating it as a threat, you're going to activate your stress response system. Compare that to, okay, well, that sucks. However, (laughs) I have a great team around me. I'm going to reach out to these people. I'm going to, you know, it's a challenge, but I can manage it. I've overcome worse obstacles, right? And then so that looking at it as a challenge versus a threat, if you look at it as a challenge, that's going to activate more arousal and focus. And you're going to energize you instead of making you feel defeated and give up and can lead to anxiety and depression type symptoms if you look at it as a threat. Well, I was going to say, because a lot of times in relationships, people trigger each other mm-hmm. and you have this trigger response that reminds yep. it's the perceived threat. I'm feeling unsafe in this moment or I'm feeling unseen or abandoned or whatever the situation is that reminds you of a previous 
trauma event, you know, or, or bad event that happened in your life. And so how do you learn to navigate those emotional responses? Because in the moment, I think most people react, most people react. So how do you learn? Cause I saw on your Instagram post, how to deal with emotions, how to deal with that <laughs> emotion regulation. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we learn to do that? I think it's really important. I think one of the key things to keep in mind is this isn't automatic. It is. I said that very fast. I don't want you to think I said isn't. It is an automatic process, right? So this is something that is set up for speed and efficiency. If there's a threat, bam, it's going to be activated. So that's, and once it's activated, now you're processing this environment using that limbic system, that emotional. And that's mm-hmm. why you react. You go with that gut instinct. Ah! Explode. <laughs> exactly. Right. Versus, no, let's say, for example, let's take a, you're in a burning building, right? I am not a firefighter. So I see this. I'm going to panic. Right. And rightfully so. Right? right. But if I'm a firefighter and I'm trained, I'm not going to panic, hopefully, and I'm going to be able to utilize other parts of my brain, like my prefrontal cortex, to really look and analyze and say, okay, well, where are the the areas that I can escape? Where are sounds coming from? Where's the source of this? How can I put it out? Are there any animals that I need to save? You know, thinking more logically and rationally because I am experienced in that situation. So that's the key here, right? And I'm not trying to say that you should be re-traumatizing yourself. Absolutely not. But what you can learn when you're not triggered, when you're not in that hypervigilant, hyperactive state is Mm -hmm. how you practice how to calm yourself down and trick your nervous system into thinking everything is okay. Right. So if you remember, I said, once you activate that nervous system and it thinks it's going it, to, you know, it's activating the stress response, you're going to be hyperactive. You're going to start breathing faster. You're going to get that oxygen flowing. You're going, your heart rate's going to start pumping faster. All of these sympathetic nervous system activation, this fight or flight response. Fight or flight. Yeah. Trigger. I was just going to yeah. say that. Yep. And so what you need to do is once you've recognized, okay, my heart starts pumping, it's biofeedback, I can feel myself getting heightened, then I need to trick my nervous system into thinking that everything is okay. One way that you can do that is with deep breathing exercises. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I love box breathing. And for those of you who don't Me know, too. Do, yeah. <laughs> so start with baby steps. Maybe take inhale for three seconds, hold for three seconds, exhale for three seconds, hold for three seconds. Right. And then just a box. It. Exactly. Other people can go up to six seconds, 10 seconds, however long you can actually control that breath. But what you're doing is by taking those deep cleansing breaths. Now your parasympathetic nervous system is going to be activated and this is your rest and digest system, right? This is the calm, relaxed state. So if you can, in those moments, be able to recognize, okay, I'm feeling heightened. I'm feeling anxious. I don't want to feel this way. Let's work on deep breathing. But the thing is, is that's only going to work if you practice it before you're triggered, Right. right. So practice it before bed. Practice it on your drive into work. Practice it when you're sitting in your office. Practice it when you're making dinner, doing dishes, whatever it is that you're doing. Practice this deep breathing. So when you need to actually utilize it, it is already automatic. For automatic. You. You know how to do it. You don't have to think about it. Right. It becomes a new habit in your life. 
Exactly. And then you can recognize, okay, I got to start deep breathing. And then you can, you already know how to do it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to get nervous. Am I doing it right? Any of those types of things. And so that's a one quick tip and suggestion. There's so many others. And I always encourage people to find whatever coping mechanism that works best for them. So for some people, it might be going for a jog, getting outside and getting some fresh air and some sunlight, or maybe it's calling your best friend, or maybe it's picking up a good book or whatever it is. But let's say you're a runner, right? And that's your outlet. What happens when you break your leg? Right. Life is still going to happen. So you have right. to have multiple tools in your tool belt that you can grab at any time. And then so that's why living a more holistic, healthy lifestyle will give you all of those tools to be able. And when I'm talking about healthy, I'm not just talking about diet and exercise. I'm talking about mind health as well. Practice gratitude, practice journaling, practice the deep breathing and the meditation and all of these things so that you can have all of these tools at your disposal whenever you need it. Yeah, I, I want I wanted you to talk about because you mentioned in your pre-interview form that you had experienced panic attacks in your life. Mm -hmm. And so how did you figure out how to get through that? Because I know, well, just talk about that. <laughs> I think that would be helpful because yeah, a lot so of people, I mean, my, my daughter included, she had experienced panic attacks in high school and she would like have to, you know, run out of the class and go into the bathroom to calm herself down. Yeah. I you know she experienced them for quite a long time. So I experienced panic attacks um, during college and then again, postpartum. So after my first child and then again, actually recently after a surgery, I didn't mm. realize the doctor didn't warn me that sometimes the anesthesia as it's wearing off oh, and it was like a day later and it was, it just, it triggered a, a panic. And I thought I, I thought I wasn't breathing and, you know, it was just like, do you need to go to the ER? And I was recovering from a surgery and it was really, you know, and then luckily about 20 minutes went by and I realized, oh, that was just a panic attack in the moment. Oh, it's terrifying. Oh, right. right. Of course. So and it's one of those things that for me, I didn't really start. Well, so originally when I started getting them originally, I was dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. I had a sexual assault that occurred to me in college. And so I was dealing with a lot of those emotions and dealing with that um, on a very personal level. And so along came the panic disorder with that. And feeling um, triggered, I, was, I would imagine. It was you triggered, just yeah. Triggered anytime I would lot. see anything that reminded me of it. And, right. and it was it took a long time. I mean, decades, right. To really, truly be able to get over it. And, but I was relying on medication and I'm not saying that that's bad, right. Medication was a lifesaver for me. It allowed me to get through college. It allowed me to function and cope. Right. But then when I became an adult and I was able to manage and I hadn't had any episodes for like, five, six, seven years, mm -hmm. I was off my medications and then I became pregnant. And then all of these hormones and all of these other changes started happening. And then after my son was born, he had a lot of health concerns that as the perfectionist and control freak that I became, especially yeah. Yeah. with all the postpartum hormones and you're just so nervous. And here's this little human being that is That's so relying on you. On you. I'm like, yeah, I, and you can't even take care. Myself, how am I going to exactly? Take care of my how am I supposed to care for this thing? And it, <laughs> he had needs, right? That I, yeah. I was, I didn't know, I wasn't able 
to mentally handle it, right? And then so I started experiencing more panic attacks at that time. And that's when I said, okay, I need to, I was breastfeeding. So I was like, I can't go on the medications that I was using before. How else can I help myself as well as help my child? Because I need to help myself in order to be a good mom to this little bundle of joy, Right. (laughs) right? And so that's when I went on my own personal health journey. And this things that it was like a lot of it had to do with nutrition and what I was actually fueling my body because you're also fueling your brain with the foods that you're eating. And I was, you mean our pop tarts good brain? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, they're super easy. Right. And I was working in Philadelphia downtown at the time and going through all these. Yeah. I was, I was literally going to street vendors because that's all the time that I had. I didn't have time in the more, at least I thought that I didn't. Right. I had to create new habits. But I, and it was one of those things where it's like, oh my gosh, I have a PhD in neuroscience, (laughs) right? From a really prestigious university. Yet I never put two and two together that, duh, the foods that I eat are the precursors to make the neurotransmitters that I need to help regulate my mood. And it was just like, hello, a light bulb moment for myself and really taking care of my gut health and understanding better the gut brain connection and how the gut microbiome can influence serotonin production and can influence how I'm feeling overall. And, you know, to be able to help, you know, lower my inflammation, to be able to just be healthier in general. And of course, yes, I lost weight as I was doing this, which was an added bonus, bonus. right? But it's, yeah. Because any new mother wants that as well. You start feeling better about yourself. But it was more than that. It was, I was sleeping better, even Mm -hmm. though it was minimal amounts of sleep because I was still a new mom. But I was feeling rested when I woke up from those naps. I had energy. I had focus. I was thinking more clearly and all of these things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I never put two and two together. And it's because we're just not taught that. And in Western medicine, even our physicians, really, I think they take one semester on nutrition, if that. That's it. You know, know, and we don't recognize the connections. I mean, the connections like you're talking about in the, in in our brain, same mm -hmm. with the connections in our body, with the connections with our heart, the connections with our soul. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it was, and maybe it was mother's intuition as part of that as well. Things that I just couldn't explain based on my years of research. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily in a book. It was just, I knew there was something more to it. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that I went through this personal journey, I wanted more people to know about it. I I felt like it was you know, I was doing a disservice keeping it all to myself. And so that's when I started you know, yes, I, I I am a tenured professor and I teach from the textbook and things like that to be able to, you know, give the information that the students need. But then I'm always open to these conversations and I include not necessarily controversial topics, but topics that may not have been as researched so that not they can more, not as mainstream. Exactly. Yeah. And then that's where my academy came about too, because it was people were asking me, I want to learn more about X, Y, and Z. How can I get this information? And I'm like, I have this information. Let me <laughs> go get your PhD. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't you don't have to go get your PhD. You can just learn from somebody who has one. <laughs> yeah. But that I mean, this is the fascinating thing for me because we are all a system and mm-hmm. yet and yet we don't 
operate as a system because we're conditioned to disconnect from various parts of our system. It's yeah. like, well, just, you know, just stay logical and ignore your body or, or, or ignore you know, your emotions. Or ignore, ignore your own emotions is a big thing, which I'm a big proponent of lear- people learning how because we're not, most of us were not brought up. Um, being taught how to express our emotions in healthy and constructive ways and not even necessarily express them, but to just be, become aware of them. Yeah. Become aware of them. And so now that you're talking about the connection in our system, they're all connected people. Yeah. So like you feel your emotions in your body first, don't you usually? I mean, there's a debate out there it's, where it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Exactly. That, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's, you know, do you have the outward expression of the emotion or is it the inward feeling? And, you know, or is it the cognitive appraisal of how you're evaluating it? You know, my heart can race because I see a predator or something threatening, but it will also race when I see my celebrity crush. Right. And so I, <laughs> it's my interpretation of what that increased right. heart rate means. Uh-huh. So, you know, that's where, but it, it's, they're all important and they're all make us who we are, but you, you know, there are certain situations. I don't want to tell people to mask their emotions and hide no. them, but there are certain decisions that you don't want your emotions to guide you along. Right. Like when you're at the grocery store, <laughs> you don't need, and, and I laugh because that was me. I mean, you should have seen me trying to pick, what kind of peanut butter to buy for my house, you know? And it was just, I didn't need to be spending so much energy reading every single ingredient and looking at, you know, the the price difference between this one and this one is just like, oh my gosh, it's not that big of a deal. Just grab some peanut butter and let's go. Maybe that's not a great example because their peanut no, butter isn't always no, the best no, for but, you. But it, no, I mean, I eat peanut butter too. No, but yeah. I, I, think, I think what you're talking about is... I've, and you can dispute me or, or mm-hmm. disagree with me or whatever, but I feel like a lot of times we do that when we, as a way to feel more in control, mm-hmm. to feel more in control of our life when sometimes we're feeling kind of out of control. Yeah. Or, or, or in a sense, uh, powerless about some things in our life. So we try to manage externally what we're having Absolutely. a hard time managing internally. Absolutely. And managing and controlling other people. Mm, right. That's I mean, a that's big something, one. Yeah. And that's something that's that, a big one. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, my husband has to check, you know, put me in my place every once in a while. And he's just like, you know, I got this. I got this, Haley. I can figure this out. And she's like, okay, you're right. I'm going to, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to let my husband pack the kids' lunches today. You know, they're oh, not going to starve. You know, but it was the old me was, you know, a nervous wreck about it. I had to make sure that they had all of the, you know, and it's just like, it's okay. They're going to be okay. And that's where, you know, automatically, as soon as that emotion is tied to it, it's going to trigger that stress trigger response. That response. And that's when you have to take a step back and allow your prefrontal cortex to say, mm, Let's use some rational decision making here. It's not the end of the world. The kids are going to be fine. They're not hungry. You're giving them what they need. They're going to be, even if they skip a meal, they're still going to be okay. Right. You know, is it ideal? No, but it's not the end of the world. It's going to be okay. They still know they're loved. They still have everything that they need. And obviously I'm not advocating that you allow your children to skip a meal, but I hope you see my point where it's like some things just, you don't have to let it get to that point. You don't have to control everything. And that's also something that I've learned recently, just this past year, 
when I became an entrepreneur, right? I want to micromanage every single little task because if I'm not doing it, then it's not done right. (laughs) That's how I was picturing it in my head. But then I was realizing, okay, well, if I do that, then I'm not going to have time to be with my kids. I'm not going to be able to watch that movie with them or... I'm going to, I'm going to have to miss bedtime because I have to do this training. And that's just not fair. That's not part of my value system. So I had to take a step back and say, okay, who am I? What do I want? What's the emotion behind why I want this business? And now I need to prioritize and make sure it's in alignment with my core values. And then if that means delegating tasks, hiring people to be able to do these things, then so be it. That's what I'm going to have to do. Mm-hmm. And being able to relinquish that control and saying, you know what, even if it's misspelled on my website, it's okay. I can fix it. I can go back and do it or I can hire somebody else or whatever. Right. And so it, it's definitely been a challenge for me where putting additional hats on right that to allow myself and it's okay I'm not going to be the perfect mom and the perfect college professor and the perfect wife and the perfect entrepreneur and everything all at the same time and that's okay I don't think I don't think yeah I don't think ever not even at this time I think it's ever and I think I think there's this misconception that we do have to show up as perfect. And, Mm -hmm. and I, and I feel like that this causes a lot of stress response, you know, and it causes a lot of unneeded stress response. It puts a lot of pressure on yourself to live up to some other person's expectations of who they think you should be, which Mm -hmm. you then internalize and say, do I have to show up up as this? perfect in order to be valued, validated, feel worthy, loved, Mm -hmm. you know, um, respected or Mm -hmm. whatever. And so, and that's a lot of pressure. And I feel like that's what leads to depression, anxiety, panic attacks. I mean, all of the things, because we're trying to micromanage ourselves in a way so we that's can fit un- into healthy this and mold. imbalanced. Yeah. Yes. And who's, that who's never mold? created. I know. Exactly. Whose mold is it? <laughs> yeah. Not ours. Not ours. So how do we how do we break out of these molds and retrain our brains <laughs> mm-hmm. to be more accepting? Accepting. Yeah. So it's a process. It's a journey. And I don't have the magic wand to be, I mean, if I did, then I wouldn't have been challenged with it this past year. I say year, that. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, if I had that magic wand, I, I would be a millionaire living on a private island somewhere, right? <laughs> um, but the first step is acknowledgement and recognition that you're doing uh-huh. it, right? And so... So these emo, we're going back to emotions again. I didn't realize that we were going to be talking so much about emotions, but they are fundamental to who we are. And sometimes if you want to use the word subconscious, right? Again, that's another term that I don't particularly use myself, but I know that's the language that other people speak. And so there are certain behaviors that you might exhibit because something underlying is keeping you doing those particular behaviors. So let's say, for example, you're in a dysfunctional marriage or a bad relationship with maybe somebody who is verbally abusive to you, right? And I'm sorry if this is triggering anybody, um, but you're in a bad situation. And all these outside people are looking at you saying, well, get out. What are you there for? Right. 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 And the individual knows, yeah, I know I should get out. I don't want to be with this person. It's not healthy. They can consciously say these things. However, 
everything in their soul and in their subconscious is telling them to stay. And why? Once again, we go back to the nervous system. It's it's automatic. It's what they have always known. It has what is familiar because familiar. it's familiar. Exactly. And familiar equals safe. Right. Remember how I said to help with neuroplasticity, it likes new novel things. Right. Now, if you think back to, again, cavemen times, go back all the way hundreds of millions of years. If you're living outside without shelter, I don't care if it's a nice sunny day and that it goes up one degree. But I do care if all of a sudden rain clouds start coming over and I feel a cool breeze, right? That's something new. That's a big change in my environment. Now, all of a sudden, my nervous system is going to be activated. So here, the same situation, familiar, things that are automatic are evaluated as safe. Things that are different and changing and have some resistance is going to be perceived as a threat mm-hmm. and to protect yourself. You're going to try to avoid that, right? So the very first step is recognizing what are the things, one, that motivate you? What are things that are going to get you to that end goal? What are things that give you that dopamine hit and make it feel rewarding and make it feel pleasurable to get to those baby steps? But then also recognize what are the things that are holding me back? What are the demotivators, right? Or the, the negative emotions influences, yeah. in my life that are going to keep me stuck where I am and just recognize them. And then talk to somebody, work with somebody who you trust, right? That's going to help you say, okay, well, here's a situation. What, which, which category was this? Was this a motivator or was it a demotivator? And then work your way towards, you know, trying to eliminate those. You can use, look at Social media, for example, I've put that on both categories. Sometimes social media can actually be quite a motivator for me. But then at two o'clock in the morning when I'm scrolling through and looking at reels from celebrities and, you know, that's not helping me in any way. That's actually hurting my sleep. It's putting blue lights in my eyes. It's not good. That's a demo. That's a distractor. That's a distraction in my life. It's preventing me from getting to my goal. So you have to recognize. And then once you know what those distractions are, now you can put time limits. Okay. I set an alarm on my phone that I'm only going to give myself an hour today on social media, or I'm only going to allow myself, you know, this much time. I I recognize I have a negative thought. Okay. I recognize it. I have it. I'm not going to try to hide it. I'm not going to, you know, push it away and lock it away in some, some case, right? I'm going to, okay, I'm going to sit here with this emotion. It feels really lousy, but you know what? Now I can move on. Now that that emotion has passed, now I can grow and learn from it. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of times people think, oh, if I feel this emotion, um, you know, I'm going to be consumed by it. It's like right. you're, you, you don't experience it for 24 seven in the same intensity. So right. if you can learn how to observe it and, and watch it. And then watch it go away. Yeah. And watch it go now, away. Some people are stuck in those moments. And that's where there could be a psychological disorder at play here, right? Where that's where you might need some additional interventions and additional support, where I would always recommend that you talk to a you know healthcare provider, a wellness provider, somebody who can properly help you manage and cope with those situations. Okay. How did you, when did you become fascinated with the brain? Like, why did you even start studying the brain in the first place? (laughs) Great question. So, um, 
in in high school, I was I had to make a decision for what I wanted to do in college, right? And I was really into performing arts, but I was also really good at science. And so I was in musical theater and productions and all of that. And so you I were. Like, I was, believe it or not. <laughs> I want to hear about that. <laughs> yeah, I was Ada Annie in Oklahoma. That's so <laughs> that was a cute. Lot of fun. That's yeah. so cute. But so I selected my undergraduate institution based on the fact that I was able to pursue science, and so I was biology major, pre med, like every other undergrad who likes science, right? Uh-huh. But I was also able to continue studying musical theater and dance and music and, you know, more of those types of arts. So it was a small liberal arts college, which the reason why I'm telling you all this backstory does come up in, in a second. But I was taking all these biology courses. And while, yes, it's very important to understand how plants grow and, you know, the earth that, yeah, I was just like, I don't really care about the Krebs cycle and plant photosynthesis and all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, yes, it's super important, but not, it doesn't not wake sure. me up yeah. in the morning. Yeah, right. It doesn't, right. It doesn't light you up. For an 8 a.m. lecture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, I ended up, I had to select a, an, uh, an elective for my major. And as I mentioned previously, I did have a sexual assault that happened my freshman year at college, unfortunately. But fortunately for that, you know, now hindsight's 2020, I was struggling and dealing with my own, you know, psychology that I I wanted to learn more about what was happening to me. Uh I had the diagnosis of PTSD. And so I wanted to know, well, what does that really mean? What's going on? And so for my elective, I took an intro to psychology course. And the rest is history. I mean, it blew wow. my mind. I was fascinated from that very first lecture. I couldn't wait to go learn more. It was the first textbook I ever read cover to cover. And I really like, I just loved it. I was fascinated by it. But because I was at a small liberal arts institution, I didn't have a lot of extra experience really delving into the brain and getting research opportunities to really understand how the brain worked. I understood the the literature behind it, but getting hands-on experience. And so after undergrad, I was uh, waitressing down in DC Mm -hmm. and um, I... There was a, one of my customers was saying, Hey, you know, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health is right up the street in Bethesda. Have you looked at doing research there? And so I looked into it and lo and behold, they had a, a post baccalaureate research fellowship, um, that I applied to and got in. So then wow. I was studying and investigating, uh, women with depression and looking at different metabolic profiles and getting a lot of clinical psychology research understanding and experience. Um, but I realized I didn't really want to necessarily work with people <laughs> as my, as my patient population. I really, I wanted to literally get my hands dirty. And you and I were joking earlier that it's like, Oh, I didn't really want to get dirty. I was the kid and I still am. I want to get dirty. I want to get my hands in there and literally <laughs> dissect brains. And so then I went up to the National Institute on Drug Abuse and looked at neurotoxic oh, effects wow. of different drugs. And then I, I was and that was fascinating. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I studied behavior and the brain and, you know, using an animal model. And then that got me into Johns Hopkins for my PhD work, where I was looking at motivated behaviors and actual sex. Uh, it was male sexual behavior and looking at the role of dopamine through that whole process. 
And then, you know, I ended up doing some consulting work after I earned my PhD, but I knew my true heart and passion was with teaching. So I worked at the national, or then I worked at, um, as faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. And then now I'm tenured at a community college, which I absolutely love because I really get to hone my skill and my craft of teaching Mm -hmm. and teaching people from so many different backgrounds who are so appreciative of my time and energy that I put into you know, and, and I still get my, my musical theater still comes out in the classroom. I have worn my tap shoes in class once and there was this one student who just kept falling asleep. And I'm like, I understand this can be boring, but, and then I started doing a little time step. And so, you know, everybody was laughing about it, but I tied it back into it. But it's one of those things where it's like, I want to show up for people where they are right. to help them really understand this and the value of it. Cause it changed my life, understanding how my brain works is is so impactful to me that I want to be able to share that passion with others. Okay. And isn't, isn't there, um, I don't know, is, is it a fact that we only use like 5% or 10% of our brain capacity or no? No. No, that's okay, not tell, true. We use our okay, whole brain. Tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. <laughs> <laughs> According to Dr. Haley, um, yes, we use our whole brain. We just don't necessarily use all of it at one time. So this idea that you're only using 10% and maybe only 10% for this one given task is being utilized, but we use every single cell within our brain. We're using all the different brain regions at some all point. All 80 okay. billion. Was it 80 billion? Yeah, 80 billion, 80 to 100 billion. It's closer to the 80 billion side. Um, um, but yeah, we have a lot of neurons in there and at some point we're using them. And the thing is, is our cells are dying just like all other cells in our body. Over time, these cells will die and you can speed up the process or you can slow down the process as well. And so that's they don't, where they don't rejuvenate themselves. Some, some of them can. That's uh-huh. called neurogenesis. And when okay. we're children, we're very good at creating new neurons. But then as we get older, there's certain areas like the hippocampus, for example, which is that area that's involved in in memory and memory consolidation that has been shown to continue to regenerate and grow new neurons, but not everywhere in the brain. And there are certain people who have, you know, damage from a stroke, for example, and some of those connections can come back, but some of them are damaged forever or, you know, Is that what happens in Alzheimer's. Yep. Alzheimer's is uh-huh. one area that, you know, it selectively degenerates those neurons and they're gone and they, they can't come back. Uh-huh. And so there are time, you know, you can slow it. There are certain supplements and, and medications and, and things that you can do, like just practicing and working your brain, doing those wordles or scrabble or whatever it is to really train your brain and practice it to help keep it strong. But, you know, it, it's, it's going to die just like every other cell in our body eventually. And so, you know, understanding that and doing what you can to prevent that and to keep your head safe, wear your helmet, right? When you're on a bike or you're playing football, you know, be safe. Riding your motorcycle, hello. Exactly. Or, you know, think about some of the toxins that you're consuming, right? Whether it be alcohol or, you know, other types of drugs, right? Uh That can target your brain and in certain areas. And then there are other drugs and supplements that can actually protect your brain. So really understanding what you're putting in your body um, really can help not only protect your mind, as I mentioned, but also protect your brain as well. You you mentioned, I watched your video <clears throat> the, um, and you said some, it's ashwanga. What, what was that? Ashwagandha. Ashwagandha. Yeah. What is that? 
So it's an ancient medicinal herb um, used in Ayurvedic medicine practices. Again, this I didn't even know what this was until my own personal health journey after my firstborn, right? And it's just it's it's been used for thousands and thousands of years, and it because it's an herb, it's not regulated by the FDA. Uh-huh. But there are clinical studies that have shown a lot of benefit for maintaining and you know helping to control that stress reactivity and actually lowering cortisol levels mm, and lowering you know, symptoms of anxiety anxiety and depression and things like that. So yeah, that's a supplement I love. I have that nightly. It helps me fall asleep. Ooh, um, I need to get that. Yeah. I'll time. send you some links. I've got some good ones that I recommend. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and then phosphatidylserine is another one that I love. Um, and I know that's a mouthful. Um, yeah, I was just going to say what? Yeah. <laughs> Phosph- but it's actually, it's, it's found in every single cell of our body. It's called phosphatidylserine. Phosphatidylserine. Yeah, okay. it makes okay. up the lipid bilayer um, of all of the cells in our body, but it has a really, when taken in supplement form, it has a really high affinity for neurons and it actually can help protect the neurons and help increase, um, you know, cognitive performance, especially when taken with B vitamins and CoQ10. Those are some other fantastic supplements. I'm, that's what I'm drinking right here, actually. So it's a lovely drink. I have it. It tastes good and it actually helps protect my brain. So, okay. Yeah. All right. What do you hope, uh, where do you hope brain research is going to go in the next 10 years, 20 years? Like what are you, what are your like goals and hopes and dreams for your field of, of expertise? Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, artificial intelligence is huge. I know that people are going to keep going in that direction. So I'm sure 10 years from now, we're going to be able to think something and something's going to happen. Like, Oh, I wish my car would start right now. Just thinking it, now all of a sudden my car will start. I don't know, something like that, that I'm sure in 10, 15 years, somebody's going to come up with that technology. We're close. I mean, robotic arms for people who have, you know, have amputated limbs, uh-huh. you, they're, they're almost there to be able to think, oh, I need to grab that pen and they can actually have a robotic arm grab it based on the neural connections of wanting to do something, that kind of voluntary mov- movement. So I'm sure in 10 years, we're going to be there. Um, but one of the beautiful things that I love about the field of neuroscience is the fact that there are so many unknowns. So for mm-hmm. me, what I want with neuroscience in general is that people keep asking questions. Yeah. The more curious people are, the more people want to know, then the more researchers are going to be out there trying to solve that answer. And a lot of answers and medical discoveries were discovered on accident. Right. Just because they were curious people trying to figure something out. And it's just like, oh, well, that was an odd side effect. I wasn't expecting that to happen. You know, and what does this mean? I wasn't expecting that cell to start firing. A lot of things. There's so many amazing things that have come out of neuroscience research that were unintended. And so as long as people stay curious and we continue to have funding to be able to support people asking questions and trying to answer it, um, I, who knows? The sky's the limit. Uh, for what we can find and, you know, different pharmaceuticals, whether it be, you know, medical, actual like pill form, or if it's, you know, through genetics to be able to target specific cell types. And, you know, instead of having chemotherapy, that's going to destroy all the cells in your body, have it selectively target those neurons, you know, that, that have the cancer. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, research out there, especially looking at epigenetics. There's so much out there. So, um, you know, meaning, meaning there is no stupid question. 
No stupid question. Absolutely not. I love it when students say, oh, I have a stupid question. I say, no, you don't. Prove me wrong. Yeah. I dare you. Whatever you have to ask is not stupid. Unless it's something that's like, oh, just read the syllabus. Right? <laughs> you have to put in a little thought here. Don't just ask me, oh, what are we good? What's on the test? That's a stupid question, right? But, <laughs> but when it comes yeah. to the actual content, there's no such thing as a stupid question. What, what do you want your kids to learn about the brain? Hmm. Oh, great question. Nobody's ever asked me that. So my oldest, he just turned nine. He's actually pretty interested in the brain. He asks me all the time and <laughs> he'll ask me things like, how do we see mom? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't. you open your eyes. Yeah. That's how most people would say, oh, the light comes into your eyes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I could take a whole week. This is, I, in my class, I take a whole week talking about, you know, the visual system and how we process. And he was just like, okay, mom, but is it the brain? I, yeah, it's the brain. And then, you know, he's like, where in the brain? And I show him all the way here in the back. And so he's already interested in the brain. Um, my youngest, on the other hand, he just likes to hit things. So he's into football and he wants to tackle. And I'm like, just wear a helmet, honey. That's his, his understanding of the brain. Um, but he's young. So we'll see. But I just, I, again, I want them to just stay curious. I mm-hmm. think that that's one of the, um, you know, it, it's what has allowed me to be where I am and to be able to accomplish so much because I never stopped asking questions. And mm. I hope that my kids still have that curiosity all the way through their life. Were, were you lifelong learners like me? I was going to say, were you one of those annoying kids like me, always asking your parents a million questions? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then I see that now. Actually, both of my kids ask a lot of those really annoying questions. And it's like, oh, my gosh, just give me a minute. <laughs> I need some peace and quiet. I love how curious and inquisitive you are. But uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but your parents must have instilled that in you. Yeah, they did. And they were both in academia. So my dad is a college uh-huh. professor, retired now. Um, but he, uh, at the time, you know, when I was growing up, he was in digital electronics. And so that was, you know, cutting edge. They didn't even have computers really back right. then, you know. And so um, and he was also at a community college, believe it or not. And I never thought that I was going to follow in his path. It's, you know, it just kind of happened that way. But at education, the love of education was instilled. My mom was um, an administrative assistant at the public schools. So, you know, she was at the middle school and the elementary schools that my sister and I were were in. And, you know, it was just always just the importance of an education and respect for knowledge and mm-hmm. also respect for the people who impart that knowledge onto you. So whether it's a teacher or even a janitor, like these people have something to give and to offer you. And so you treat them with respect and you learn from them. You learn from every single person that you meet and just to honor that and respect it. That's a big, big lesson. Yeah. I, my parents instilled the same thing. Like no matter who you speak to, they're worthy Yeah, of your time or your energy or, you know, to, to smile at somebody down the street or whatever. Like every person has value because they're human. They're part of our yeah. Be, they're part of our human um, con- connection. Like yeah, I, and collective. We yeah. Collective. Collectively, mm-hmm. we're all connected. So 80 billion times, oh my gosh, could you do the math on that? Yeah, right. 80 billion in your own brain times 80 billion in that person's brain times how many yeah. billions of people in the world? And all that electricity that's just an energy yeah. that's being generated, you know? And so- wow. 
Yeah, just understanding that. I mean, it's it's mind boggling. And, you know, you'll give yourself a headache <laughs> really trying to figure it all out. <laughs> and, you know, it's it, but that's why it's so fascinating. And yeah, I love well, it. Well, obviously, I mean, I love I love talking to you today because you're so passionate and you're I mean, you're so exuberant and passionate and it's infectious. So oh, thank keep you. Doing, keep doing what you're doing, Dr. Haley, because thank you. You're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Tell my husband you said that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, he does, I just, he does. <laughs> no, I keep, I keep seeing like song, like songs about the brain, mm. songs about the brain, creative ways to engage kids as well as adults, because a lot of this is very, you know, high functioning. Yeah. But if you can, if you can break it down so that people can understand in a, you know, for, us more simplistic people. You're you know, not but, simple at all. No, but I'm, but I'm saying, but I'm saying so that people can understand themselves better and exactly. understand their own functions. And, you know, I mean, that's what I talk about in my emotional relationship world. It's like, mm-hmm. you have to break it down in a way, like for me with my relationships, it's like, is what you're doing helpful in creating mm-hmm. a better relationship or hurtful and breaking right. things, you know, putting up walls between you. And if we can, if we can learn our, about ourselves, like that's why curiosity is so important to me too. It's like asking more questions so that I understand myself better so that in turn I can, I can understand you better as well. And that's really why, and you know, this isn't a shameless plug, but that is why I developed my academy because I want to work with people who work with others, right? It's Uh almost that trickle down effect. I can't possibly personally touch every single person on this earth. Everybody could benefit from understanding more about the brain. But if I can teach the teachers, if I can teach the people who are working with the clients and working with their patients or students or whoever it may be, then their knowledge becomes power and they can teach them and then use that to give them better buy-in for whatever, you know, task that they're trying our tip or suggestion that they're giving them to help right. overcome those obstacles, but to show there's some biology behind this. Let, let's actually break it down. What's actually going on here. This is why what I'm teaching you makes sense. And then hopefully that will give their clients a better outcome. Right. right? So maybe I, cause I'm not a train, I'm not a coach, right? I'm not a, a wellness professional, So I can't work with these clients one-on-one, but if I can teach the teachers and teach the coaches, then I know that their clients will have better outcomes. And so that's my way of being able to give back. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. So Uh I totally honor your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like we all need this. Aw. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's, you know, and, and I honor and respect everything that you do as well. I, I don't have the patience to be able to, to do what you do. So thank you for your part in helping make the world a better place as well. And, and hopefully, you know, people listening can, you know, reach out to you and thank you as well, because, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be able to share this knowledge and this information, have these discussions yeah. that many people are either afraid to have or right. ask questions and, you know, have these conversations. I think it's so important. So thank right. you. Thank you. Um, okay. So the, the last question that I asked my guests, because this is called wake up to real love. Uh, how do you define real love? Your questions, you're killing me. 
Oh, gosh. I hope I'm inspiring you, not killing you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the scientist in me is, you know, thinking about the neurochemicals that are released, but then the mother in me and the wife in me and the friend in me knows that it's so much deeper than that. Um, I mean, I think the most, the purest love I've ever experienced, I'm a spiritual person. So it's the love that I receive from God and that, you know, I give back and hopefully back to the world. Cause that's, I feel like I'm a vessel for God's love. Um, you know, but without getting too hokey, <laughs> right. Um, but hokey. The, yeah. <laughs> so that's, you know, the purest form of love, but then there's also the love that I have with my children that I, I can't describe it. How can you define it? And just, looking in their eyes and hearing their laughter and just the the chills I get up my spine when I experience their joy and, you know, and also their sadness. And that is true love in my mind. And, you know, and I understand not everybody will be able to experience that love in their lifetime. And so it's, it's something that I truly honor and respect. And um yeah, I, I, I'm so blessed to be able to be a mother. Look, I'm starting to tear up. I'm feeling it right now. So <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's my biggest accomplishment. Yes, I have all these degrees and, you know, things that I've done in my life, but hands down the biggest uh, accomplishment and most proudest moment is being a mother to my beautiful children and mm-hmm. being able to watch them grow and hopefully help shape their brains and their minds so that they can become really kind. And their hearts. And their hearts. Yeah, and their hearts. And yeah, and just being really good people. That's all I care about and their definition of success and helping them achieve that in whatever way that I can. You are and you will and you are. Thank you. Yeah. So how do how do people get in touch with you, Dr. Haley? Great. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I am on social media. Uh, you can reach out to me on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn or Facebook with the handle at be well with Dr. Haley. Um, I'm also on the clubhouse app as, um, Dr. Period Haley. And that's Haley with two Y's, H-A-Y-L-E-Y. <laughs> and then um, my website is academyofneuro.com. And specific information about the certification program uh, would be academyofneuro.com uh, slash certifications. Awesome. So, I'll And I'm that- sure you have that information in the notes. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah I'll put so that in the show notes. Up. Anyways. Yeah, and then I'm not a real person, so there's ways. She to is. You are. Yeah. <laughs> just reach out to me. I offer free discovery calls, and you know, just uh, reach out to me with any questions. I am I'm available, and I want to help people. So yeah, remember she sings and dances and tells fart jokes. <laughs> I do. I do. I have some really good fart jokes. <laughs> I'm not going to tell one now, though. <laughs> That's for another podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So <laughs> listeners, I'm sure you've gotten so much wisdom and knowledge and information from Dr. Haley. You are a beautiful, beautiful soul, which is why I connected with you. Why I wanted you to be on my podcast. So thank you so much for coming. Um, and for the listeners, please subscribe to the Wake Up to Real Love podcast. Share with your friends. Give five-star reviews because we want these messages out in the world so that people can understand themselves better and then can manage their emotions better and create more, you know, more healthy and constructive neural pathways so that they can show up as a better version of themselves. You know, we're not perfect. We're imperfectly perfect. That's what I say. Yeah. So, um, so subscribe, share with your friends and, um, 
share the love. <laughs> That's what this is all about. Share the love. So I am so grateful that you have been here. This has been a pleasure and you are more than welcome to come back and talk about this stuff anytime because I think it's fascinating. Like I'm just, my mind is going. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And I look forward to continuing to work with you. So thank Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks, everybody. Um, Thank you, Dr. Haley. And thanks for listening. And every day, remember, wake up to more and more real love. Uh, Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye. Subscribe to the Wake Up to Real Love podcast. Leave five-star reviews. And, of course, share with your friends. You can find Dawn on various social media platforms at Dawn Richard or at The Awakening with Dawn.